0: Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more.
1: Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm good, good. Thanks for taking some time with me. Um, We've talked quite a bit offline and um, Uh, You've just uh, edited and also co-authored a book that is so relevant to our community, countering the financing of terrorism, law and policy that just came out through the American Bar Association. And what I wanted to do is ask you a a few questions, uh, get your take on some of the things that you covered, but also get your thoughts about where we are today in terms of the AML infrastructure, because as we both know, it's uh, potentially can change pretty dramatically given the passage of the Anti-Money Laundering Act of that uh, uh, was signed in January 2021, but also with all the changes that now include non-traditional financial institutions, all these uh, various products and crypto and all of that. But your focus specifically with the authors that you put together was on uh, terrorist financing, which, as we know, certainly since 9-11 has been a... Uh, both a priority and a focal point for both the private and public sector. So what, uh, what got you interested in putting this together? Talk, walk, walk us through the process that, that resulted in this, in this excellent uh, uh, publication that you've just uh, released.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. And I should also say that I have been following your career over the decades. And it's it's really a privilege to be here with you. And I, I love your podcast. So it's a real honor to be here with you today. Yeah, this goes back Uh, you know, almost to when I was a kid, when I was always interested in political violence and terrorism. And, you know, when most normal kids were reading about rosters of baseball teams, I was reading the old State Department reports about terrorist groups. I have family in Europe, so I followed uh, some of those groups in Germany and the like. And you fast forward, I became a banking lawyer and, um, you know, I I spent a lot of time focused on anti-money laundering and uh counter-terrorism financing, and because of my role, either through the ABA, the American Bar Association, or through my firm or other organizations, what I would impanel uh, some conferences filled with people who do this uh, for a living full time, either on the, the government side or otherwise, I was able to uh, really develop a, a deep Rolodex, and you and I are old enough to know what a Rolodex is. That's right, yeah. A deep Rolodex of people who are, are really talented and skilled in this area. And what we did at one point, I teach as an adjunct professor at Chicago Kent College of Law, where I teach classes on banking and national security law and even Holocaust and the law. And what we did is we did a one day event uh, at which we did all the various aspects of counterterrorism financing. And by that, I mean how you designate them and how you sue them if you need to sue them and what the military can do about it, what the intelligence community can do, FinCEN, OFAC, and just about everything that your listeners are, are very well familiar with. We did a full-day conference on it, and at the end of our conference, we looked at ourselves and said, you know, there there isn't a great treatise on the subject. There, there's right. plenty things about the typologies on terrorism, there's plenty of good things on national security law, but there isn't something that, that focuses specifically on countering the financing of terrorism. And so what I did, basically, I conducted the orchestra, I brought everyone together to say, let's do this. And this was three years ago. And a lot's changed, as you know, and your listeners know, in three years with respect to terrorism and financing terrorism, right? I mean, ISIS came and went and came back. Um, We have domestic violent extremism now, crypto, all these various things. So in a way, it was almost good that it took a lot of these busy people three years to help develop the book because you know luckily we developed the book after january 6th and we're able to have aspects of it that covered domestic violent extremism which is obviously a huge topic these days and yeah it just came out a few weeks ago we're thrilled by it it's published by the aba and uh it's there for anyone who's interested to to read and enjoy dramatic readings are available
1: (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, the way it's structured, the way it's set out, not necessarily the, the chapter designations, but within the chapters, you cover criminal aspects of this, sanctions, of course, uh, international issues, you know, looking at uh, terrorist financing from the perspective of the United Nations, FATF, of course. Uh, I think all of this taken together becomes uh, not simply a useful tool, but a useful resource. And, and as an, and I've gone through, uh, most of the, most of the book, uh, and one, a couple of things jumped out at me. One, we'll talk a bit about the section that you co-authored on, uh, the role of, uh, of banks and countering the financing terrorism, which is obviously a key and essential, but, you know, one of the other things that I've worked on, and I'm sure you're well aware of and perhaps been involved in some projects deals with sort of the, um, I'd say the collateral impact of trying to counter terrorist financing, specifically in areas such as charities, right? So there's a number of references in the book, correct references, of course. Uh, One is entitled simply The Return of the Abuse of Charities as CFT Concern, and there's some others within some of the other chapters. So one of the things that still continues to challenge all of us is on the one side, it's very clear that terrorist fi- financing gets enabled or gets or one of the tools is unfortunately misuse of charities, some intentionally, a lot unintentionally, unwittingly, of course. And so what ends up happening, as we know, is that uh, your clients and our clients look at charities and humanitarian groups and think, well, there's clearly a risk issue here. So we got to do a risk assessment, but there's also clearly Uh, we have to mitigate whatever those risks are so that our regulators are satisfied, but also so the cost doesn't severely outweigh the utility of banking humanitarian groups. So just as a, as a, as an aside, you know, I think that's, that's an important aspect of it. Is it something that your clients grapple with and just high level? What is it that you, that you recommend other than the obvious, obviously do risk assessments and obviously do your proper due diligence, all those sorts of things. But this seems to be an area that it's, unfortunately, it's so clear that charities have been misused, but also so clear that they're so essential to society.
0: That's absolutely right. And we represent about 250 banks around the country of various different sizes. And I spend a lot of time with them, helping them with their uh, AML and other examinations. And, you know, we spend a lot of time about risk assessments. Uh, we want to try to avoid our clients getting into enforcement actions, although, you know, that does happen from time to time. And what we talk about is really building up an AML risk profile from the ground up. And you need to know the risk uh profile of each of your customers and, and roll that up into the institution. And you're absolutely right when you mention charities, because charities play such an important role. And, you know, when you think about this tension between AML and, you know, being able And regulatory expectations on the one hand, and then being able to provide in, in some of these diaspora communities, uh, you know, fund remittances back to their home countries and how those funds remittances can can help those countries and mitigate the risk of terrorism. You know, I think about uh, Somalia, for example, and Al Shabaab right. over there when, you know, we have clients in Minnesota and we have to be able to talk to them about trying to discern between what are legitimate uh, you know charities that deserve to have those funds provided there and being aware of the typologies and other risk factors of an al-shabaab or some other terrorist group and I, I think you know one of the things that I, I keep harping on and I'm actually writing a paper on this uh, relates to what I believe the government should be doing about a, a better public-private partnership so that it provides, not just some of the strategic intelligence that it has been providing and broad typologies, but really tactical intelligence so that, uh, you know, not unlike you're probably familiar with, uh, you know, UK has a gimlet organization. Right, that, yes. Uh, you know, and, and also comparable to what is done in the cyber world, the ISAACs, the information sharing and analysis centers. I'm proposing that we do something like that for violent extremism so that banks understand better uh, from the government, you know, they don't want classified information, they don't want sensitive information, but there has to be information they can be provided below the line to know which of these charities, as we're talking about now, or, or other, you know, issues relative to their customer base, they should be careful about uh, it, it, not just these broad typologies that you read about in the FFIC manual, but, but, you know, very time sensitive things so that they can understand the lay of the land.
1: Oh, that makes sense. Um, chapter four, which you co-authored, is the role of banks in dealing with this. And you, again, you've already referenced the manual. And obviously, there's red flags that have been published. Um, we've seen the priorities issued uh, by the federal government that came out, sort of a, as a reaction or as a response to AMLA directions. When you put that chapter together, and I would urge or anybody, whether we've just, you've just started in AML or you've been there, you're a BSA officer, that that chapter sort of confirms why we do what we do and sort of what the uh, what the tools are. But when you put that together and you looked at the reporting, the compliance, or other the typical things that go into the role of banks, anything in your research that struck you, even though you've been a practitioner for so long, as something unique or something that you weren't as aware of that you said, i better make sure I put that in this section.
0: Yeah, we wanted to make sure that, you know, don't forget this book is for so many different audiences. So we may have yep. some people who are government officials who have never touched a bank, but they're very much into terrorism. And you know there may be some people who are BSA officers who could have written the chapter better than I could. and And so we, we tried to tailor it for everybody. For those who are expert practitioners, we talk about the plumbing behind what goes into the OFAC designations. We talk about, you know, where they can do a deeper dive into learning about terrorism that they may not have been as familiar with. But for those who are new to this area with respect to bank obligations, particularly maybe, you know, those in law enforcement and the like, they have a better understanding of, of the really the 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 robust amount of reporting and uh you know the daily work that bsa officers need to do to get that information to the government and what we want to try to create is as i know you've talked about many times is is a virtuous cycle of information between the banking industry and the government and then it's got to work both ways you know one of the things that that struck me is when you read the suspicious activity report uh uh data is that very few you know one percent or so of the SAR specifically mention terrorism finance wh- right. which probably makes sense uh because you're not going to see a big you know al-qaeda flag uh posted to you know a particular transaction but it, it really points to how difficult this subject can be for banks to identify uh, you know, you you know this as well that you know there's really two sides to terrorism financing. There's the strategic side on on how an organization gets funded, like a Hezbollah or or an Al Qaeda. But then there's also the tactical side. You know, the the renting of the car, the knife, the gun, that is really hard to find. And and so it it really it it's incumbent upon banks to to get smarter and each become their own financial intelligence unit, an FIU, uh, right? We know the big banks have FIUs where they have whole teams of former CIA and FBI people who in, in effect have created their own private sector CIA for a particular large organization. Even our community and regional banks each have to be their own FIU with respect to their unique risks in their customer base, because it's not just about the size of an organization. It's about what's their inherent risk. And that could be based on customers, geographies, you know, are they in a high intensity drug trafficking area or high intensity financial crime area? Um, And there's so much that goes into it. And that's why really BSA officers need to have a, a good understanding of what's going around in their community, around the country and
1: around the world. That makes so much sense. And I know our uh, colleague, uh, Rick Small, who uh, is a truest, always talks about, you got to give me more information. Because as you say, in the tail end of your chapter on the role of banks, it didn't cost that much to for the 9-11 hijackers to do what they did. And certainly since then, even less amount of money for lone wolves, using of simple credit cards. So the having information, not just typologies, but some solid information from our law enforcement partners. And while we do have 314 and there are some abilities to share, it's not as robust as it should be. AMLA might improve that. And I think if we can figure that out, that would just make both sides of this coin uh, you know, stronger in terms of their ability to both detect, report, and hopefully prevent these attacks. So I think your your chapter brings that home. I wanna shift to the next one, chapter five, uh, the role of criminal prosecutions in combating terrorist financing. There's a couple things in there that struck me as um, obviously everything in here is current, uh, but you do mention domestic terrorism. And obviously we've seen that uh, sadly with, uh, uh, you know, the the potential attacks on the governor of Michigan, the January 6th and all of that. But there's a, I won't say it's a, it's a debate in the book, but it, the, the the authors of that section were very accurate in saying that there are there are statutes about material support and some ways in which you can prosecute criminally terrorist activity. But the notion of domestic terrorism, um, there's there's been an ongoing debate that should we craft a new definition of domestic terrorism in the criminal statutes? And some say yes, some say, well, wait a second. The, the nuance here is. Uh, It could be used against, and I'm generalizing here, First Amendment activity versus, you know, violent activity, obviously. So, um, but I did, I did see that in the section. And obviously that's going to continue to play out. I don't think there's anything that has, as they say, legislative legs right now that's going to pass. Certainly not in this Congress, but that's been an ongoing debate. And what's your sense from practitioners uh, in the public sector what they think about the ability to potentially prosecute under a different statute. Does law enforcement thinks think it's necessary? I know some do, but I, I don't think it's I don't think everybody in one group or another is together on this.
0: Yeah, it, it is a great and fascinating question and a lot of trees have been killed <laughs> <That's> <laughs> trying right. to get to the answer on this. My sense of it is that there are a great deal of crimes under 18 U.S.C. that can be prosecuted. There is a gap. Uh, we we want to be able to name and shame domestic terrorists. But by the same token, we want to be mindful of having to trim a little fat around the Constitution. So how how do we balance that? And the way I think about it is I, I think we should be very careful about creating a a DTO, a domestic terrorist organization, in the same way we have an FTO. Because an FTO designation, a foreign terrorist organization, you know, about 65 of these, it's done through an interagency process. And once you're designated, uh, you cannot provide material support to that organization that can include for example giving them a glass of water at, at the crazy far extreme of that that right. also meant you cannot give them yourself which is how a lot of these uh, folks were prosecuted going over to syria I, I think that would create too much tension on the first amendment but what i think you could do um so the, what i just mentioned is 18 usc 2339b mm-hmm. um, under 18 USA 2339A, which which is also talks about material support, but there's a caveat. It has to be, uh, you have to know it's going to be done in connection with a terrorist act. So the distinction I'm making is uh, the 2339B, which says even if you don't think it's going to be for a terrorist act, if you provide it to a terrorist organization, you can be charged with a crime. I think that goes too far under domestic laws. But if you commit a crime... And, you know, it is meant for, uh, you know, a terroristic intent. And that's typically you want to bend the will of the government or influence, you know, society, scare society as a whole. I I think that there is a name and shame element of that. That is a gap in the law. And I think we'd want to have a way in which um, for those, you know, probably a narrow sliver of incidents where there is. A crime committed, and the purpose is to change society. As a result, um, that we should be able to designate that in in some way, shape, or form. Because otherwise, you have situations like a, a recent prosecution of a Coast Guard lieutenant, where he was found with a, a large amount of arms, and and the thought was he was going to create, uh, you know, sort of a mass casualty event. They could charge him with certain, you know, gun offenses and and the like, but we're not able to charge him as a as a domestic terrorist per se and i think i think having something akin to the uh 2339a uh framework for domestic terrorists could be something that would not run afoul of the constitution but would narrow that gap in terms of being able to call it like it is what it is with respect to domestic terrorism
1: no that sounds uh, uh not only insightful very practical and um as is, as I continue to say, as is the book, the next chapter, uh, private litigation against terrorist financing, I did do years ago, but the case went on for a decade. I did expert witness work in a case where a bank was being uh, basically challenged for not reporting activity that turned into terrorist attacks, but it was prior to nine eleven, So, you know, people don't remember this that haven't been around as long as we have the prior to 9-11, uh, while well, terror is terrorist activities clearly happened, there really wasn't any expectations on the part of the regulators or law enforcement that the financial sector, you know, unless things were patently obvious, would have obligations to detect reports. So um, the, while there is an anti-terrorism act of 1990, you know, it, it was re- it was a different world. And that's changed. And obviously, We've seen a lot of um, guidance documents from law enforcement. We've seen the regulators in the manual talk about terrorist financing, and certainly it's part of the suspicious activity report. But I think the chapter goes into uh, areas in which institutions could be sued uh, and where litigation could occur. And I I always think that's a use. It's like looking at an enforcement action, right? look at an enforcement action, and your institution might be decidedly different than the multinational that got uh, find or a C and d but you can look at the themes in there. And I think similarly to this chapter, you look at the, uh, the federal legislation and um, you can sort of figure out, maybe do a gap analysis. Hey, you know, if there were to be a use of this statute against our institution, what would be the defenses? You know, it, what sort of uh, corporate culture we have, what sort of resources, training. So really like the fact that you added a private litigation section in this book, because it sort of fills out, you've looked at the criminal side, you've looked at the role of banks, obviously, you've looked at designations, sanctions, but this is something that doesn't always get uh, uh, identified. And uh, so I think this is this is clearly not simply useful, but it adds to the value proposition that I see in this book of all all various tools to be as up-to-date as you can be as as a practitioner, whether you're advising a client or you are the institution to deal with this. So I really think having you folks add that chapter has been extremely valuable.
0: Yeah, and I would agree. So let's start with the enforcement action discussion. I, I agree with you 100%, and I tell all my clients that they should read all enforcement actions, even if it's not your regulator, even if it's not an institution like yours, because it really is signaling by you know usually the prudential regulators or FinCEN or OFAC where they let institutions know here are the expectations. And so I, I know I read them all and I encourage our clients to do the same. And you're right about this chapter. To me, this was the most enlightening chapter of them all because I had never done a deep dive into these various ways, these various vectors by which banks have been sued over the years. And and you're right, this goes way back. I mean, the um, anti-terrorism act w- was originally called the Klingoffer act, right? After uh, the, the famous unfortunate event when, uh, Uh, Leon Klinghoffer was killed by uh, Palestinian terrorists in 1985. And, you know, the act was enacted in 1990. And the permutations, uh, uh, you know, over the various years, the decades-long litigation are are fascinating. And then you add on top of that something called JASTA from 2016, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. And you you, you see the evolution of how uh, Congress says, okay, we have different vectors by which Uh, banks and others can be the targets of these to, again, help them think about, you know, what's the cost benefit analysis of avoiding in any way, shape or form helping terrorists. And so, you know, I I joke about the fact that if banks aren't afraid of regulators and if they're not afraid of the Justice Department, maybe they should be afraid of plaintiff's lawyers (laughs) like they are in other contexts. And, and when you read the chapter, you, you really get to see by some practitioners who've been on both sides of the fence in those cases, um, really how the, the law has developed and how there's still a great deal of uncertainty. But also there is enough signaling uh, to let institutions know where those bright lines are. Uh, you know, I, I would not expect very many American banks to uh, be caught up knowing the AML-CFT regime we have here in this country, uh, that they would, they would stay well clear of those lines. But if, if someone's representing a foreign bank, particularly, I, I think that th- these lessons show, you know, how some of these institutions have been, you know, defendants in these suits, how they've defended themselves, how they've said, look, all we're doing is providing basic banking services, or we didn't know they were meant for terroristic, uh, intentions and the like. And it does provide a, a good roadmap, really, for both sides on the plaintiff side and on the defense side, right. uh, you know, how best to navigate th- this shifting environment.
1: No, I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. The last chapter, uh, Department of Defense, uh, counter threat finance, uh, I found that fascinating in that um, I know that when we were, when I was at ACAMS a few years ago, we uh, sort of fell into the notion, people said to us, you know, uh, the military does some work in this space and we were able to get some speakers uh, from, uh, from the Department of Defense and from other uh, parts of uh, the armed services that actually had teams that looked at threat finance issues. And so uh, the, the, the last chapter sort of setting that out and, and put out how, how funding can occur that way I think, like I said already, sort of completes, completes the uh, picture, if you will, right? You know, it's private sector, public sector, and it's the military. They all have roles here in, in countering the financing of terrorism and adding that uh, is extremely important. T- talk to us how, how you arrived at that, other than you obviously, like me, understood that this was sort of part of the puzzle, but what made you decide to put it in the book? Because I think it really does add to the completion of all the all the tools that I think are necessary to to counter uh, terrorist financing that you have put in, that you put in here.
0: Yeah, I've had the privilege of being able to visit uh, Socom Special Operations Command down in Tampa, Florida. Yep. Uh, they have a counter threat finance unit, and they hold conferences from time to time. And I I've been there, uh, and and I've sat in. I've soaked in the the knowledge created uh not just from the socom folks but they really convened folks both from the public and the private sector and and talked about what it is that they do and how the private sector again can create that virtuous loop in terms of you know even the sars that banks file ultimately get to them as well and help them do their job and because this was a book not just about Uh, counterterrorism or or counterterrorism financing, but the law of counterterrorism financing, I thought it would be helpful from an Army JAG's perspective to talk about, you know, is it legal for us to bomb uh, an arms depot, um, you know, that may be close to a civilian environment filled with dollar bills. You may have seen the famous picture of, of when we bombed these depots, and you see what looks like snow coming down. Those are really, you know, $20 $20 bills raining down after we, we put a, a warhead down on the building. And because I teach this national security law class, I, I thought it was important that, you know, to complete the picture, we we need to know, you know, whether those actions are legal under domestic law and international law. Plus, I wanted banks to know that, you know, SARS aren't letters to Santa Claus. Uh, they do get read. They she do get used. They do get disseminated throughout the government. We may not know how your SAR leads to um, possibly preventing a terrorist attack, but I, I wanted to round out the knowledge you know, for BSA officers, particularly to know that uh, that their work is not in vain. And sometimes a lot happens behind the scenes, but they are part of this bigger mosaic that hopefully all of us, it's not just a compliance issue, but it's a national security issue and a you know, frankly, a patriotic issue for all of us to be working as hard as we can on this.
1: Uh, couldn't have said it better. Uh, get you out of here on this. Um, what else should people know about the publication other than what we've uh, gone into? Obviously, the value proposition, private, public, sector, military. It gives you, if you're sort of new to the space, it, it gives you an overview of the laws and regulations. If, if you're a practitioner, it gives you some updated typologies? What else are you hoping readers of this, which I would agree with you should be a uh, broad-based community, readers of this should expect uh, from from the publication?
0: What I hope to get them to understand that this is not just a whole of government, but really a whole of society effort. And if we want to combat terrorism financing, and ultimately terrorism itself, it's going to take all of us, all hands on deck, rowing at the same time together in the same direction. And hopefully that comes across through the pages. I mean, the authors that uh, we have put together are, are some of the most well-known people in the industry who do, who do this or people who should be well-known. Right. They've all been there and done that. And they all are patriots who w- want to uh, ensure that we live in a safer world. And I think this book is, you know, one little tiny baby step in that direction.
1: Uh, John Gerringer from Barack Ferrazano Financial Institutions Group in Chicago. Thank you so much for this. I do want to give you a chance also to plug uh, you have. I know you're working on another book, uh, but you also um, you you, uh, you uh, teach a class on the study of the Holocaust and the law. Uh, want, want to give you a chance to, to plug that as well, because we'd love to have you back one time when your when your book is complete.
0: I appreciate that. Yeah, like I said, I'm a co-director of the Center for National Security and Human Rights Law at Chicago Kent College of Law. That's my side hustle. Part of our center is something that we call crucial. It's the Consortium for the Research and Study for Holocaust and the Law. And particularly after Charlottesville, uh, you know, it it hit closer to home. My my dad happened to be a, a Holocaust survivor. And it's always been in the background in my life. But when I saw Uh, what happened at Charlottesville and what's happened since then, I I realized that the the study of legal issues surrounding the Holocaust um, is is not a historical event, but is a day-to-day activity. And I, I taught a class this summer on Holocaust and the law and was told by the students said this is one of the most important classes they've ever taken, because what we try to do is to infuse in them the morals and ethics of what it is like when you are in situations where are you going to be an upstander or a bystander? And so that is infused throughout the class. It's not just to learn little bits of history here and there, but it's, it's to learn how to be a better citizen. And what we hope to do with the, my next project, uh, now that this one is done, is to create a comparable treatise on issues surrounding Holocaust and the law, every aspect of it from Nuremberg Laws and Trials to also a chapter on lessons for today and what we can all learn um uh, to to avoid you know similar to the issues surrounding terrorism to to avoid having uh the red white and blue become the red white and black and that's that's the theme of that next book so stay tuned on that but i appreciate you mentioning it
1: john thank you so much uh really interested in, in what you're working on there this publication is tremendous uh, hopefully people that are listening, like I said, even if you think you know everything you should know, even if you're a BSA AML officer, I would urge you uh, that we don't all know everything. You can always learn. And there's some fascinating sections in here. But it's also a completed uh, section. You know, it's, it's a completed. I say I say puzzle. But, you know, I look at the AML infrastructure as uh, over time, there's been so much added on, very little taken away And this, in the financing of terrorism, takes all the different aspects of it that are so important. And I think, as you alluded to earlier, what we do as practitioners matters. What we do on a daily basis, uh, if we do it correctly, can help society. So I think this book will simply add to that. So, John, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.
0: Thanks so much. A real pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations, brought to you by AML Source. To make sure you're
1: staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.